0: please take your Bibles, and we come back today to the book of Zephaniah, and I explained to you last time that this is the ninth of the minor prophets, and the rest of the minor prophets are those who prophesied after the exile had come to an end. I refer to Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and we'll be coming to them in due course, Zephaniah, therefore, is the last of the post-exilic prophets, and we have been looking at this prophecy now on two previous occasions, and we come back to it now today. I'm not doing a set reading at this point, because we will be mainly today in chapter 3, and we will look at that chapter as we make our way through it, trying to cover what's there. But by way of reminder, could I just say to you that the theme of Zephaniah is that subject of the day of the Lord. That term is found over 30 times in all of the Bible. It's a term that has to do with the end times, last things, matters that pertain to the realm of what is called eschatology, the doctrine of last things. And it therefore touches on end times, it touches on end events, this book of Zephaniah, as well as touching on the day in which Zephaniah lived and ministered in his own lifetime. The phrase, the day of the Lord, signifies judgment. It has that connotation to it, that sense to it. It is judgment that ends a period of wickedness and rebellion against the Lord. And so when you come to the book of Zephaniah, you find that there's much in this book about that subject of judgment. Judgment on Judah and judgment on other nations, heathen nations. All of this is brought before us. And of course, judgment always comes because of sin. And so the book of Zephaniah reveals or exposes the guiltiness of sin. When that's done, then the same Scripture is going to go on to bring to us a message of the judgment that that sin deserves. And so that's the pattern that we find in the book of Zephaniah. And it's out of that pattern that this theme of the day of the Lord actually emerges. Now, that term, the day of the Lord, as I showed you and mentioned it already here today, but I showed you in the last couple of studies that that term was frequently employed in the Old Testament it signifies the end of a period of history, whether regarding Israel or other nations. And it's used, as I said, actually frequently in the Old Testament, 25 times thereabouts, not only with regard to Israel, uh, an end of an epoch with regard to that nation, but also with regard to pagan nations as well. And so, the usage of the term develops, and it's applied to the end of all things, with regard to the last judgment, there will be a final judgment, as we're all aware, there will be that last judgment that will come upon the ungodly of this fallen world. And so uh, it, does relate, it does relate to the days in which these prophets lived, the day of the Lord, but it also has significance with regard to the end of all things, and the Bible in the New Testament refers to the great day of the Lord, the day of judgment itself. As I showed you, it's, it's also linked with another term, another eschatological term, that phrase, the sun, or that little clause, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. And so, we're familiar with those terms. And they come up in the Old Testament. That's where they have their root. But they're carried over into the New Testament, And they're linked together with the phrase, the day of the Lord. And so, that kind of language signifies that the final judgment will bring time and opportunity, as we know it, to a close. You think about uh, the sun, as it says, the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. What that means is that the purposes of these heavenly bodies, and I took you back to Genesis to show you their purposes, but the purposes of these heavenly bodies... It's all going to come to a close someday, and there will be an end to the need for the sun and the moon as they uh, function uh, today and have functioned down from the very time that God made all things. The Lord Himself is going to be the light of the entire universe when He comes again in all His glory. And so, i just give you this recap of what we have looked at here with regard to the book of Zephaniah. Now, toward the end of the study a couple of weeks ago, the second study in Zephaniah, I was dealing with the issue of earthly kingdoms judged in Zephaniah's times. A plurality of nations came under judgment in the days of Zephaniah. And the first of these is Judah at the time of the Babylonian captivity. And we noticed this section. If you want to just look at your Bibles now from chapter 1 verse 4 right through to chapter 2 verse 3, the focus is on Judah, God's people, the uh, congregation of the Lord at that particular time. But we find, as I showed you then, that Judah comes under judgment for her sin. And we outlined, we saw how it's outlined for us actually in this passage from chapter 1, 4 to chapter 2, verse 3. It's outlined there what that sin actually was. Apostasy from God, compromise with false religion, a materialistic outlook on life and on culture and so on. And then, if you look at chapter 1, verse 12 again, uh, there was the outlook within Judah, within those who profess to be the Lord's people, that God doesn't really care about how people live. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees, that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. And there is the attitude that Judah had. They're sending away They're turning away from God. They're compromising with other gods and false religion. They're full of materialism in their outlook and in their culture. And the thinking was that God didn't really care, that God was indifferent uh, toward the sin of the nation, or that God was dead. He will not do good. He will not do evil. So, they were saying to themselves, we can dispense with this matter of judgment. The Lord doesn't care how we live. And, of course, in all of that, we have traits that mark our own days. And, indeed, have marked generations down through the ages. People have always lived like this. They have apostatized from God. They've compromised with false religion. I'm talking about the visible church. They become very materialistic. And, of course, that's the big snare that always is there for any of us in any time or any generation And then the thinking creeps in, well, God, God, if He is there at all, He loves everybody. He won't do good. He won't do evil. He'll treat everybody the same. He's indifferent toward how we live. And surely uh, we believe in universalism. That's what men say. Everybody's going to be saved in the final analysis, and God wouldn't send anybody to hell. That existed in the days of Zephaniah, and therefore how up-to-date is the Word of God. So that's as far as we got in the last study. I want, therefore, to take up what you have uh, quickly scanning through uh, chapter 2 again just to show you this. I didn't get to this in the last study. From chapter 2 and the verse number 4 through to verse number 7, we have judgment pronounced on the Philistines at the day of the Lord. Now, look at chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Gaza shall be forsaken, Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and that ground shall be rooted up. And from verse 4 down to verse 7, that's all about the Philistines. Now, this is interesting, very interesting, because these verses signify total destruction. The places mentioned, in those, especially in verse 4, those places are the ancient dwelling places of the Philistines. But here's the point. They also are indicative of modern-day Palestine. Now, if you take, for example, the word Gaza, the name Gaza, you hear it all the time, don't you, in the news, uh, references to Gaza, even some of these other places that are mentioned here. And so, here's the thing I want you to think about. What you have in these verses has to be future. Because the Philistines, by the days of Zephaniah, had been defeated and routed and overthrown, especially in the times of David. You read the story of David, the great king of Israel, and you will find that he, he was always at war with the Philistines, and the Philistines were, uh, were essentially overcome and destroyed and they never really came to any power again in, in Bible times after the days of David. So, when you read these verses, you have to think to yourselves, well, uh, the, Phil- the, Phil- the Philistines don't really have any power anymore when it comes to the days of Zephaniah. They don't even really exist anymore as a nation or as a kingdom. So, what does this mean? And that's what I'm saying to you. The Philistines of the Old Testament are the Palestinians of today. And they're going to come under the judgment of God, according to what Zephaniah says here. So, the judgment of the Philistines stroke the Palestinians at the day of the Lord. That's what you have in chapter 2, 4 to 7. I can only say a few things about each case here. We move on to chapter two, from verse eight to verse eleven, and you will read there, in verse eight, uh, the words of the Lord. I have heard the reproach of Moab. Now that doesn't mean reproach, hate, on Moab, but rather Moab reproaching God, reproaching God's people and the things of God. Then it says, and the revilings of the children of Ammon. And you may remember where the Moabites and the Ammonites came from. They came from that unholy um, connection between Lot and his two daughters. You Read about it in Genesis, how they lay with their father, each had a son, and they became the people who are mentioned here, the Moabites, the Ammonites. And Yet, they're spoken of here in these words. Now, it says, I've heard the reproach of Moab. Now, if you read through the Bible, you will find that the Moabites were always reproaching God and reproaching truth and reproaching the things of God. Then it says, the revilings of the children of Ammon. And again, it is active. It's not passive. It's not that the Ammonites were being reviled by somebody else. It's the Ammonites are reviling God just like the Moabites Reviling and reproaching God and pouring scorn upon the things. Well, read on in verse 8. Whereby they have reproached my people. There you have it. And so, the reproach and the reviling in verse 8 with regard to Moab and Ammon is the pouring out of scorn and so forth upon the Lord, upon His people, upon His cause. And so, we have here in, in these verses, 8 through to 11, The proud way in which God's enemies reviled him and his cause. But you see, it all comes to nothing. As you read on here, you'll find that uh, great judgment comes on the Moabites and upon the Ammonites. And you can read the verses yourselves. I I don't want to take time to do that this morning, but I want you to read them yourselves. But just something to draw to your attention look in verse 8 at the word Ammon. That name is the counterpart of Amman, which is the capital of Jordan today. So, you might wonder where the Moabites actually were seated or where they lived. They lived across on the eastern side of Jordan in what today is called, I mean the river Jordan, in the land that is today called Jordan. And the capital of Jordan today is Amman. And it's the very same word as the word Ammon in the Hebrew language, the Arabic even. And so, turn to Daniel eleven and verse number forty-one. Daniel eleven and verse number forty-one. Now, I, I can't uh, say much here because of time, but uh, if you cast your mind back when we when we did the study on Daniel, I preached through Daniel a few years ago, and Chapter 11, a major part of it at least, is all about the final Antichrist, the man of sin. There's no doubt about that. All schools of thought that are orthodox will agree in that. And so, we come here to verse 41, and it says, He shall enter into the glorious land, and the glorious land is the holy land, God's land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But notice this. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Just notice Moab and Ammon are mentioned here, and it actually says they will escape the ravages that the Antichrist will bring on the Middle East. But yet, Zephaniah shows us they're going to be destroyed. And so Zephaniah 4, sorry, Zephaniah 2, verse 8 to 11, brings us to the day of the Lord with regard to judgment on Moab and Ammon. They may escape; they will escape what comes upon others in end times. And yet, their doom under the hand of God is sure; It's going to fall; it's going to come. Chapter 2, 12 to 15. You've got the Ethiopians and the Assyrians in that passage. Verse number 12, ye Ethiopians also, ye shall be slain by the sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. Now, those nations came under judgment in ancient times, and what you have in these verses, 12 to 15, is really typical, points to what will come again. Uh, in the end times, in the day of the Lord, when there will be utter destruction of the enemies of Christ at the time of the end, at the day of the Lord. And so, what you have here, what happened to the Ethiopians and to Assyria, is going, or is actually, stands in Scripture as a portrayal of what will happen toward the end of time. But look at verse number 15 for a moment, the final verse regarding Ethiopia and Assyria. Verse 15 says, This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. That signifies total destruction. But what you have in verse 15 is a reference to the carelessness of Nineveh. We dealt with this uh, matter of Nineveh being destroyed in earlier studies here in these minor prophets. And again it's referred to in this set of verses 13 through uh, 12 uh, through to 15. And Nineveh is going to Nineveh did come under destruction and it signifies as I'm saying the destruction of all heathen nations at the end whenever the Lord comes again. But leading up to that destruction. Nineveh was careless. It says in verse 15 that she said in her heart, I am, I am, and there's none like me, none beside me. That's carelessness. Will that mark the end times? Let's turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse number 37. And we find that it surely will. Carelessness will mark the world. Carelessness, carelessness of attitude will mark mankind as we get toward the end of the age. So, Matthew 24, verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving and marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What marked Noah's day carelessness. As it says here, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Now, there's nothing wrong with eating and drinking in terms of sustaining your body. And there's nothing wrong with marrying or giving in marriage, taking those basic matters of life. But what these verses are really saying is this is all that people live for eating and drinking, and thinking that life's never going to come to an end, and that's signified by marrying and giving and marriage. Now, I think there's a deeper meaning to that, and I'll say that in a moment or two, but if you just think about it this way, how is the human race perpetuated? It's perpetuated through marriage. Well, I know that a marriage is uh, very much abandoned, and we're aware of this, and people live in fornication, people cohabit, just taking male and female, and children are born, uh, and so on. But ordinarily, essentially, the human race is perpetuated by the union of male and female. And of course, that shows the ridiculous thing that sodomy is, because you can't have the perpetuation of the human race through sodomy. It's just not possible. But anyway, that's the thought here. As I said, there may be a deeper meaning, and I believe there actually is. What happened in the days of Noah? The sons of Shem married the daughters of the world. That was the church mingling with the world. Uh, God forbade that. That was an unholy alliance, the believer marrying the unbeliever. You'll find that in Genesis 6. I I am of the opinion that that's also in view here. In other words, carelessness, even with regard to the Lord's people. Doesn't it say in Matthew 24, a little earlier, that the love of many shall wax cold? And so, God is showing that toward the end of time Just as Nineveh was marked by carelessness, it actually says it there in Zephaniah 2.15, this is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, saying in her heart, I am. There's nobody like us, the Ninevites. And then suddenly they're swept away. That's the way it's going to be at the end of time. The world of the ungodly, utterly careless of spiritual life, utterly careless with regard to uh, death and eternity. Thinking all goes on perpetually and indefinitely, and there's no end to it. And as they're saying to themselves those very things, God will intervene, Christ will come. First Thessalonians 5, when they're saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them, and they shall not escape. And so these things are clearly set forth. And what happened in this context here of Zephaniah 2, uh, these particular verses from verse 12 to verse 15 is going to take place again with regard to the judgment and the destruction of earthly nations. And so, what a very vivid presentation we have in Zephaniah 2 of the day of the Lord and the judgment that it will bring upon the nations of the earth when the Lord comes again in all of His glory when the day of the Lord dawns. But then move into chapter 3 because chapter 3 brings us back to Judah and back to those who profess to be the Lord's people. It says here in verse number 1, "'Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city.'" And that is actually a reference to Jerusalem. At the time when the captivity came, she was filthy, she was polluted. She's called an oppressing city. Why? Because she oppressed the servants of God. Who lived? Who ministered at that time? Well, the man who stands out as the prophet of God in those days is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was oppressed and he was persecuted over and over again. But there were others, undoubtedly, who were with him in those days, others of the remnant of God's people. And Jerusalem had sunk to such a a depth of filthiness and pollution and apostasy that she persecuted men like Jeremiah. She was an oppressing city. And Jerusalem comes back into view. This is interesting because that's who's in view in chapter 1, as we saw, into chapter 2. So why does the Lord return now to Jerusalem and Judah in the end of this little prophecy? Well, here's the reason, and it's this. Greater privileges bring greater responsibilities. Jerusalem had been privileged over and over again, generation after generation. God kept sending His prophets, he kept sending His word to the people of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel, but they rejected it and they despised it. Yes, there were some revivals, there were some times of repentance, but the, the, uh, the uh, decline kept developing until it came to the point where both the northern kingdom has been, uh, was taken away and, and the southern kingdom is, is swept away into Babylon. And so, This is what I'm saying here. God comes back to Judah and Jerusalem in chapter 3 because greater privileges bring greater responsibilities. Isn't that true? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Look at Matthew 11 for a moment. Verse number 23. And it says, thou, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have rep- remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Those are awful words, those two verses. Matthew eleven twenty three and 24. And there are other verses like them. And they're teaching this very truth. Greater privileges bring greater responsibilities. Capernaum, that city, was privileged to be the center of the Lord's ministry in his day. He made Capernaum the base from which he went out on his preaching tours. But Capernaum had the Lord in its midst and heard the preaching of the gospel. Capernaum was exalted to heaven, brought down to hell. And the Lord goes on to say that at the day of judgment, it will actually be more tolerable for the land of Sodom, cities of the plain, destroyed in Lot's day, than it will be for the people of Capernaum. There is the principle that I mentioned. Greater privileges bring greater responsibilities, and people today need to understand I mean people who sit in Bible-believing churches, people who hear the gospel preached, people who are exalted to heaven. In that sense, They're shown the way to heaven. They're taught the only way of approach to God. They're shown how you can be saved. And yet, with all those privileges, they turn away. And they they reject that truth. And God says, it will be more tolerable for those who have been sodomites than for those who have sat under the gospel and rejected it when the day of judgment actually comes. And so... That's what's been said here in Zephaniah chapter 3. If you go back there, look at verse number 2, because Zephaniah 3 outlines more details about Jerusalem's sin, Judah's sin, and therefore why judgment was actually inevitable. And so, verses 1 and 2 show us that that nation of Judah was polluted by sin, And in verse 1 talks about her filthiness, her pollution. And then verse 2, notice the four sins that are in verse 2. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Four specific sins are mentioned there. But let me tell you something. Those same four sins are repeat it every Lord's day. People hear the gospel. People hear the Word of God. They will not obey the voice, the Lord's voice, not the preacher's voice. They will not receive correction. They won't trust in the Lord. They don't draw near to God, to draw near to God is to draw near in repentance and in brokenness over sin. But just as Judah would not do this in Zephaniah's day, so people today are unwilling to take the steps that are outlined here. If you take it in a positive way, they should obey the voice. They should receive correction. They should trust in the Lord, and they should draw near to God in repentance and in faith, but they won't do it four terrible sins that are actually outlined. So, Judah, unlike the heathen around Judah, Judah had the Word. Judah had temple worship. Judah had all the privileges. But there was nothing but negativity. That's how verse 2 runs. Obey not, receive not, trust not, draw near not. Notice the negatives. Negativity through and through. No positive response to her spiritual advantages. Rather blatant unbelief. So there's one thing, uh, the pollution that sin brings upon a people, upon a city, and that's how it was in the days of Zephaniah. Then the second thing I want you to see here is in verses 3 and 4. And here you have... Perversion by ungodly leaders. Verse 3 says, Her princes within her are roaring lions, her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. And so, in those two verses, you have ungodly leaders, and they are both political leaders and religious leaders. Verse 3 her princes, her judges. Isn't this remarkable? That God points to what the princes of that day were like, the civil leaders, the princes and the judges. And notice how they are described. It says, her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. You take those two animals. Lions and wolves, they're ferocious, they are carnivorous, they eat meat, and so forth. That's the kind of beast they are. And the Lord says that these princes are like roaring lions. Now, where where else in the Bible do you read of the roaring lion? Well, the outstanding place is 1 Peter 5. Where Peter writes about your enemy, the devil, going around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And when you think about that, that's exactly what God is showing here. He's showing that these ungodly leaders, the princes, likened to roaring lions. What is He really saying about them? They are men doing the devil's work. That's what He's saying. And that's what's going on, brethren and sisters, all around us. Men today are like roaring lions. They're doing the devil's work. The devil is the roaring lion. But the devil operates through ungodly men. The devil doesn't sit in Parliament, as it were, personally passing laws like those have been passed in Westminster and Stormont. No, ungodly men are sitting in there and they're doing the devil's work. And that needs to be said, because that's exactly what is going on. And so, civil leaders, princes, judges, you take the judge. The judge is the man who's supposed to uphold um, the standards of rectitude and, and so on. And yet, these uh, princes, these judges here are called evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones to the morrow. They're called evening wolves because if you think about it this way, a wolf catches its prey, and it just lets it lie there, and then the next morning it just lies and gnaws away at the bones, and that's what wolves do. They catch and they drag things to their dens, and and I suppose many wild animals do, and then on the morning, the next day, the, the carcass is there, and they tear it apart, and they They gnaw on the bones as very graphic language. And yet God's talking here about men. Those who are judges. Who are supposed to rule with rectitude and decency and morality. And and yet they won't do that. They're evening wolves. They, They like to get the bones that have been put in place by former generations of good men and good leaders and they rip things apart, and then they gnaw on the bones if, well, we're, we're just doing it away with it all. We're changing things. You see how the Bible's so up to date. This was going on in Judah. This is going on in the Western world, in the United Kingdom, America, across Europe. All that was right and true and decent and godly and biblical and moral is being ripped apart by those whom the Lord describes in this graphic way. And then the prophets, verse 4, verses 3 and 4 go together. These are the on God leaders. On one hand, the civil leaders, the princes and the judges. On the other hand, the prophets and the priests. In verse number 4, it says, Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Now, when it says her prophets are light, it doesn't mean that these prophets were giving spiritual light. It is using the word light in another way. It's using the word light in the sense of they don't really amount to much. In other words, they're light in the sense that they're shallow, that there's no spiritual depth to them or what they have to say. And then the the priests, and that goes on to say that they are, that the, the prophets are light and also treacherous. So, if, if you get a ministry, for example, where it's all light and frothy and bubbly, that's what God's talking about here. You know what it is? It's a, an effort to make people feel good, make them Feel that there's nothing wrong in their lives, and they don't really sin and 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 they and they can live as they please, just like the world, and don't worry about it. All will be well. That's what God's talking about here. Because that's exactly what the false prophets were saying in Zephaniah's day. There's no depth to their message. You see, my dear friend, there's no depth to a message where there is no warning of the wrath to come, where there's no exposure of sin, where there's no revelation made of where people are wrong on their lives. There's no depth to that message. It's light. There's only light it's treacherous because it's a bundle of lies. And people are being betrayed with regard to the well-being of their souls. And then it mentions the priests. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They've done violence to the law. Now, just think about that because what the Lord is saying there is the priests have profaned the sanctuary or polluted the sanctuary. What is the sanctuary especially? That's where the sacrifices were offered. That's what's in view here. These priests polluted the sanctuary of God, maybe offering up... uh, sacrifices to idols or false gods. We're not exactly sure what was going on, but they were profaning the sanctuary or polluting it. And what they're really doing there for was in a typical way, they were attacking Christ and his sacrifice. They were attacking the gospel because the Old Testament ceremonial law, that's the law I believe, that's in view there. It says they have done violence to the law. The Old Testament ceremonial law portrayed Christ in every part. its sacrifices, its priesthood, the altar, and all those different matters that you read about regarding the ceremonial law, it all presented Christ, but now it's all polluted. And therefore, there's an attack on the gospel, an attack on the Word of God that He has given to His people. And this is the kind of leadership, that was being exercised by those who were prophets and who were priests in the days in which Zephaniah lived. And so, you have not only the pollution of sin in verses 1 and 2, and the perversion by ungodly leaders in verses 3 and 4, but then from verse 5 through to verse 7, you have punishment by a righteous judge. Verse 5 says, the just Lord, as in the midst thereof, he will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. And on and on it goes down through to verse number 7. And the thrust of these verses is that the sin of both the people and the leaders of Judah stands in stark contrast to the administration of God's just or righteous punishment for sin. So look at verse 8. And see how this comes out. Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And I tell you now from this uh, preaching desk, that this is a clear reference to the final universal judgment that will come upon kingdoms and nations. What happened in Zephaniah's day in terms of the sin, the pollution, the corruption, was pointing forward to what will happen toward the end, and then suddenly in verse 8, you're at the end, you're at judgment day. You can't read verse 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 8 and not see that. That's judgment day in verse 8. The Lord says, I'll gather the nations, I'll assemble the kingdoms, I'll pour upon them mine indignation. He says, my fierce anger, he says, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And so, here's the Lord coming in verse 8. This is really the day of the Lord in verse 8. This is the end of this age in verse 8 when apostasy has risen to an awful height and wickedness prevails and all these things are happening, never mind in the world at large, but right within the visible professing church, then the Lord will come and His judgment will fall. So what do we have then in the rest of the chapter? My time is just about gone, but from verse 9 to verse 20, you have the blessing upon the Lord's remnant. That's what's revealed from verse 9 to verse 20. There's a a prophecy here of great blessing upon a remnant of Jews and Gentiles also. You can see that as you read through. And you know, in verse 9, you have a wonderful verse. It says, and here we have, this remnant of Jews and Gentiles being rescued by God. It says in verse 9, For them will I turn to the people of pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. And on and on it runs here. And so these verses describe the Lord rescuing a people for Himself from sin, from the effects of sin. That's what you have from verse 9 to verse 13. And the emphasis in those verses is on the language or the speech of those whom the Lord rescues. Verse 9 says, Then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord. And verse number 13, The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. And so on. And so there's an emphasis here upon how people with whom God deals begin to address the Lord. You know what God is saying here? You can have people cursing and swearing and blaspheming as they do. And then suddenly, when the Lord begins to rescue them, one of the first things just about that He does is He changes their language and they begin to pray. That's what you have in verse 9, that they all may call upon the name of the Lord. A people given a pure language. It's the language of Zion. It's the language of the gospel. It's the language of the Holy Ghost. And they start to pray. And what a wonderful change the Lord is able to make. They become a praying people. Verse 10 refers to my suppliants, And that's a a rare word in the Bible, suppliant. But you can see where it comes from. It comes from the verb to supplicate, which means to pray. Are you a suppliant? Is your voice heard in heaven? Can you come to the Lord with a pure language? Oh, my friend, let me tell you something. If a man's addressing God, he will not be cursing. If a man's addressing God, he will not be swearing. He'll be using the pure language of the Bible. He'll be using the pure language of the the Holy Ghost that he puts into his heart. He'll come with brokenness. He'll come with gladness. He'll come with rejoicing. All of that is the pure language of the saints. And that's the language you long to hear, isn't it? You know, a society keeps on declining, the language gets worse and worse and worse. And there's no change to that until God changes people's hearts. And so, there's the remnant being rescued, and they are praying people. Verse 11 and verse 13 show that there are purged people. Verse 11 says, "...that day shall thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, when thou hast transgressed against me, for then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt be no more haughty because of my holy mountain. God purges away pride. Verse number thirteen, uh, it says there, the remnant of Israel shall no more shall not do iniquity nor speak lies; a deceitful tongue not be found in their mouth, and so on and so on. The Lord not only creates a praying people but they're a purged people, purged from pride and lying and deceitfulness and all those marks that are upon the ungodly. And then the remnant rejoicing from verse 14 to verse 20. That's how the chapter closes. Sing, verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Verse 16, In that day it shall be said, To Jerusalem, fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in midst of thee is mighty. He will save. I haven't time. The time's gone. But that's how you sum up the last part of this chapter, the remnant rejoicing. as a joy that knows no bounds. The Lord's in the midst, as verse 15 tells you, and verses 16 and 17 tell you. They're acquitted of their sin. The enemy's conquered evil is dispelled. This is the remnant rejoicing. And so, we leave Zephaniah there, and I trust that what we have seen will be a blessing to your hearts. There's so much application to our day and our times and to the world around us, to the church of God, and we do pray that the Lord will use His Word and write it on our hearts for His own glory and for His eternal praise. And so we'll just bow together as we close here now. And let's take to heart what we've just read about calling on the Lord with a pure language. May I encourage you to get into the prayer meetings? As for this has worked out, the prayer meetings of God's church, where we come together and we lay hold on the Lord and we just forget about the idle chatter and conversation, even in God's house, not the place for it. It's a house of prayer. Let's get to prayer. Father, bless us now. Be with us, we pray. And give us again what we've read about here. O oh Lord, there's so much in this little book, and we rejoice that You've shown us something, a little of what Zephaniah had to say. And Lord, may it be written on our hearts, May our minds be instructed. May God come and bless us and lead us on with Himself. Lord, we do live in a dark day. A day, Lord, when there are men like roaring lions and ravening wolves. And yet we know the day will come when God will judge them. And Lord, we take no delight in that. Rather, we just simply say, Lord, but for the grace of God, there go I. And may we have that attitude may we lament over all that's happening. Be with us now and bless us in the times ahead and meet with us, we pray. We ask this for Jesus' sake and for God's eternal glory. Amen.